This is an RNZ podcast. This is Media Watch. I'm Colin Peacock. This week we ask why RNZ recently aired a scoop sourced from stolen data that criminals were looking to cash in on. RNZ is broadcasting this story as the documents raise questions of public interest importance. Turns out not everyone agrees with that call. You know, Radio New Zealand in this case has, I think, really pushed up against that boundary, I think crossed it. That's the Privacy Commissioner who's complaining to media watchdogs about what he says is an ethical breach. We'll hear from him and RNZ's Editor-in-Chief on why they ran that story and the principles at stake. But first, a landmark report on climate change landed this week with confronting conclusions for us all. So, how did the media handle that? 10 past 8 this morning, right now it's the AM show and here's Amanda's Good News. There is good news. Is your good news for Tuesday with Honda Jazz, the all-star celeb slam. That was Amanda Gillies, the co-host of the AM show, excitedly introducing a new slot sponsored by the carmaker Honda, which wants to bring viewers good news. Now, at the time, New Zealand was in the middle of a freeze so fierce the electricity system had crashed the night before, while the Olympic Games were shutting down an overheated Tokyo in the middle of a pandemic, and the birthplace of the Olympics in Greece was hemmed in by heatwave-driven wildfires. Good luck finding a sponsor for news like that. But last Tuesday, the AM show's good news story, brought to you by Honda, was this. Congratulations to the Camp Glenorchy Eco-Retreat, which has just been named the winner of the Review Pro Spirit of Hospitality Award, the Holiday Park Sector's most coveted award, which is based on reviews and feedback. Well, it is good news, I suppose, that an ecological lodge for tourists is good at what it does. But it was going to take a hell of a lot more than environmentally friendly accommodation in the Southern Lakes to make a dent in the bad news that was leading the news everywhere that same morning. Na miki o good morning. Hundreds of top scientists have released a devastating assessment about the state of the planet. The landmark UN reporters warned global warming is dangerously close to being out of control. Its findings come amid a backdrop of deadly fires, floods and heat waves. Overall, the world is already just over one degree warmer than it was during the period between 1850 and 1900, and the ocean surfaces are just under one degree warmer globally as well. And the climate is heating up faster, and it's definitely our fault, all of us, everywhere. Chair of the UN panel, Ho Sung Lee, says humans are pushing climate into unprecedented territory. It is indisputable that human activities are causing climate change and making extreme weather events more frequent and severe. Now, we kind of knew that already, though most of us just don't like to think about it too much or too often. But last Tuesday, you had no choice unless you were avoiding the news altogether. The heat is on, said Tuesday's Dominion Post front page, against the backdrop of a raging wildfire, an image that many papers around the world chose that same day. And its stuff stablemate The Press put these words from climate expert Nathaniel Millier from Victoria University on its front page. The contents of this report are nothing short of terrifying. And under that, Stuff Climate reporters Eloise Gibson and Olivia Wannan went on to report that the IPCC report was much stronger than its predecessors in making a link between human-made heating and weather extremes. The report also says that the threshold for temperatures rising by 1.5 degrees, more than pre-industrial times, will likely be crossed not long after 2030, and without any action, today's toddlers are likely to see global temperatures two degrees higher before they're 40 years old. And if you think all that's bad for these Pacific islands we live on, the smaller ones north of us are likely to suffer more. 
The more we know, the worse it looks for the Pacific, said a headline in the New Zealand Herald on Tuesday, and Professor Mark Howden and Dr Morgan Wairiu warned that warming could lead to the loss of entire countries due to sea level rise in the Pacific within the century. Well, Pacific Island nations will bear the full brunt of climate change in coming decades. After a prediction that temperatures will rise to 1.5 degrees Celsius higher than pre-industrial levels as soon as the early 2030s. Last year, the government declared a climate emergency to focus people's minds on the importance of the issue and more recently, the Prime Minister has said climate change was a matter of life and death. And much earlier, as she's often reminded, she called it the nuclear-free issue of our generation. But it turned out the IPCC report on climate change wasn't even the news issue of last Tuesday. It hit front pages that day and the news headlines that morning it landed, but then it slipped out of them just as fast. And by Wednesday, the Prime Minister was facing fewer questions from reporters about that than political parties squabbling about Winston Churchill's portrait in Parliament. Should Winston Churchill against it? I'm going to stop for this one. I personally do not care where portraits hang in Parliament. I care about what we do in this place. We have a responsibility to look after New Zealanders in a massive crisis that we're facing. Frankly, who hangs on the wall at the time we do it? I don't care. So the big question is... What can and must be done? Well, the message on the front page of the press last Tuesday was, climate change, it's in our hands. But what exactly is in our hands? Inside the paper, Stuff's handy graphics showed that our emissions mostly come from agriculture and manufacturing. But if you don't own a farm or a factory, and most of us don't, what then? Well, on Morning Report the same day, RNZ's Jordan Bond highlighted one area where we really do have a choice to emit less, transport. But in spite of what we know, many New Zealanders choose to do the opposite. The country's household transport emissions have increased 13% in the last five years, far outpacing the growth in the dairy and manufacturing industries. Ministry of Transport figures show New Zealanders are also driving more, up 7% per capita in the last five years. And that's because of what we drive as well as driving more often. The top four most popular passenger cars last year were all SUVs or sports utility vehicles. The urban tractors are a common sight in posh inner city Auckland. The road's full of them. SUVs are everywhere. Well, the big cars on the road around Ponsonby Road, I don't know why really. But those sky-high SUV sales Jordan Bond outlined there are eclipsed by sales of other high-emitting vehicles which were made for the farm but that you now see just about everywhere. So utes such as the top-selling Ford Ranger or Toyota Hilux and vans are excluded. Household transport emissions going up by 14% in just five years have wiped out any gains from fuel efficiency or alternative fuels, leaving RNZ's Jordan Bond with a bleak conclusion. 2019's figures, the most recent reliable data that the Ministry of Transport has, were the second highest since the turn of the century. They measured more than 9,000 kilometres per person was travelled over the year. But at local and regional level, there's little evidence that transport emissions are being taken seriously. Auckland's new regional land transport plan, for example, which covers the next 10 years, forecasts per capita transport emissions will be down just 1% by 2031. If climate change really is in our hands, as the press said last Tuesday, we're sitting on our hands when it comes to transport emissions. Indeed, we're sitting stalled in traffic, with some in the media manning the roadblock. And it is indeed the same when it comes to roads, as Hayden Donnell now reports. When Transport Minister Michael Wood announced a $685 million bike and pedestrian bridge over the Waitamata Harbour in Auckland, the howls of protest began almost immediately. 
The loudest cries came from the direction of the News Talk ZB studios, where several popular hosts cleared their schedules to take pot shots at the project. Here's Mike Hosking. In the week that we've talked about the three waters and the infrastructural issues of this country being 180 billion, we suddenly have a close to a billion for a cycleway. That seems nuts, doesn't it? And Heather Duplessy Allen. This announcement, plus the boomer bike bridge to Birkenhead, plus the cancellation of desperately needed roading projects like Mill Road south of Auckland and State Highway 1 from Port Mars and Whangarei, plus all the cycleways being built everywhere, plus the removal of car parks, plus the planter boxes popping up to block off roads in your neighbourhood, and that petrol levy in Auckland. All of that is going to remind you they're not listening to you. They are deliberately leaving you in congestion. And Kerry McIver. You've got the boomers bike bridge to Birkenhead when you have the small towns screaming for drivable roads so they can drive the many hundreds of kilometres they need to drive to access hospital treatment. That's in the North and South Island. Or to simply be able to get supplies into their town, like Methven. They just want one little bridge, thanks very much. Credit where credit's due, the Boomer Bike Bridge to Birkenhead is a powerful and memorable insult. Though I would have noted that the bridge would have also served Northcote, which is home to one of the largest kānga order developments in the country. A mid-June Herald story revealed Waka Kotahi had assessed the bike and pedestrian bridge's benefit-cost ratio, or BCR, at 0.4, or 40 cents for every dollar invested. It carried the headline, Stupidly Expensive, Real Cost of New Auckland Harbour Bike Bridge Revealed. That stupidly expensive quote came from Axe David Seymour, who also told the Herald, we'd lose less if Michael Wood sent taxpayers' money to a Nigerian prince to keep safe until he can pay us back. In her Herald on Sunday column that same month, Kerry McIver pointed out the pedestrian and cycle bridge cost as much as 26 new bridges and flooded Ashburton. McIver failed to note the hold-up on that $30 million bridge was actually mostly the fault of the local council. But these attacks clearly struck a chord with both the public and the media. News Hub's Tova O'Brien described the walk and cycle bridge like this in her story accompanying the release of the latest News Hub Read Research poll. Nurses strikes, the botched bubble, vaccination rates, a really overpriced cycle bridge and ute gate. News Hub went on to reveal that 81.7% of its poll respondents opposed the bridge. Given that opposition, it came as little surprise when Prime Minister Jacinda Ardern signalled the bridge wouldn't be going ahead over the weekend explaining to the Herald's political editor Claire Trevette that she's a pragmatist. The following day, the Herald's post-mortem on the ill-fated proposal matter-of-factly described it as a white elephant. Maybe that's fair enough. The bridge should really have included public transit. Even accounting for some institutional anti-bike bias at Waka Kotahi, which has spent the last few decades building a succession of motorways, its BCR isn't great. It was easy to create the impression it was overpriced and extravagance. But what if I told you that in the exact same transport plan that funded the Boomer Bike Bridge to Birkenhead, there is a project that will cost at least twice as much and deliver less than half the benefits? Imagine the media evisceration that project would receive, the wails of rage that would echo around the beehive and the media sphere about the potholes we could be fixing instead. As it happens, that project does exist. The Ōtaki to North of Levin Highway had a BCR of 0.37 in 2018 when it was projected to cost... $817 million. In the latest funding round, that price tag has blown out to $1.5 billion, and the BCR is now thought to be 0.2 or lower. Unlike the bike bridge, it will encourage more people to drive, leading to more carbon emissions, which the IPCC has fingered as a key player in a catastrophic, unfurling environmental disaster. 
Despite that, outside of a few news reports on potential court challenges to the proposal, the media response has been muted. It's hardly the only overpriced roading project that's enjoyed relative anonymity. The Carpeti Expressway, funded under John Key's national government, had a BCR of 0.2. That provoked a little bit of critical coverage from Campbell Live, but few other outlets followed suit. Perhaps the most egregious recent example of this double standard is in the coverage of the project Labour has signalled it wants to focus on instead of the bike and pedestrian bridge. A road and public transport tunnel under the Waitamata Harbour had a BCR of just 0.2 when it was still expected to cost $10 billion. That price tag has now risen to $15 billion, or 22 times more than a walk and cycle bridge, and it's unlikely the BCR has gotten better as a result. The howls of protests have been pretty quiet over that. In fact, they've mostly only come from one journalist, the Herald Simon Wilson. He recently wrote an article headlined, Blowout, Auckland's Harbour Tunnels Will Cost $15 billion. Was that headline a bit of a subtle dig at the more sympathetic coverage roading projects typically enjoy? I put that question to him. Yeah, I wrote the headline blowout and they, they left it on, uh, which I was pleased about. You don't get the same level of complaints about roading costs. Um, and I think a good example of that is the Mill Road project, which was greenlit by the government at the beginning of 2020 and then put down to a severely reduced form um, earlier this year at the same time as the um, cycling bridge was announced. And a lot of commentators made the direct equation. But in fact, the blowout on the Mill Road project was much, much bigger uh, than the cost of the cycling bridge was going to be. So, you know, they, they didn't really equate at all. But actually what we had there was complaints that it wasn't going ahead in its original form. That's right. That's right, yes. Cycling projects, uh, many of them have very good uh, business case attached to them. Very few major roads do. Uh, Mill Road didn't. Uh, the East-West Link proposal in Auckland doesn't. Um, even Penlink doesn't. And yet we are quick to hear about the uh, any problem to do with the cycling uh, uh, infrastructure, but people do seem to take it on the chin a bit uh, when it comes to roads. Yeah, well, why is that? Why do you think we've had two months of venomous coverage over this $685 million cycling bridge when we'll often spend billions on highway projects or they'll blow out by hundreds of millions of dollars and we won't even blink an eye? It's very easy for people to think that uh, if I'm stuck in traffic, what will help me is to put another lane on this road, uh, to widen the road and create more capacity for cars and then uh, the traffic will flow. It is hard often to understand that actually that's not what happens. If you create uh, more capacity on a road, uh, what you are doing is encouraging more people to drive, and they will. You're inviting more people onto the road, and you don't fix congestion. You simply make it uh, worse. Do you think that part of the reason why cycling projects get so much hate is because maybe the public, but also reporters don't necessarily understand that concept of induced demand? Uh, Induced demand is one of those concepts that makes people fall asleep as soon as they hear it, actually, so it it is quite hard to explain. Um, And what probably also happens is that uh, it just feels so counterintuitive that people think, gosh, it, it, it can't be true here. How much of the complaining over it, both from the media and obviously it's from the public as well, is sort of down to a little bit of innumeracy or unawareness of how big the overall transport budget is? I think that even with that cycling bridge included, it was walking and cycling was only something like 2% of the overall transport budget for the next 10 years. If you think about 
uh, cycling infrastructure and how little there is in Auckland particularly. I mean, last year they got down to, I think they built four kilometres. Their their target was only 10, and they haven't met that for some years. And yet everything they build always... um, it's how the protests and supposed enormous cost of it uh, is, is factored into those protests. But you know, just a little over 2% of the transport budget is going on cycling and walking. And yet, for reasons of helping with congestion and health and, of course, the climate crisis, it should be one of the spearheads of the whole strategy. How much of the double standard in road versus cycling project reporting is down to the fact that that network isn't there yet and so those users aren't there yet. I sort of think of it as similar to housing where people that will benefit from an apartment project aren't in the apartments yet and so the existing landowners get the priority. Many media and in the public uh, find it hard to see the future, uh, the potential, and see the demand, which of course is in the future. It's not, it's not demand that exists now. There are no people swimming with their bikes. There are no cyclists gathered on the foreshore in despair. You know? <laughs> it can't be, can't be approached in that way. For all the anger over its price tag, maybe the most honest appraisal of the opposition to the walk and cycle bridge over the Waitemata came from News Talk's Glenn Hart, who explained why he didn't support the proposal, but did support the expense of Puhoi to walk with motorway extension like this. I'm certainly looking forward to having that road. I don't care how much it costs. I'd rather they spend money on that than things that I will never use, like a cycle bridge over the harbour, for example. Maybe that point of view is understandable. Most people drive, and so they see roads as the most practical transport investment. But the world is warming, transport emissions are contributing to that, and encouraging more people to bike and walk is just about the most effective thing governments can do to address that problem. There's also the issue of simple geometry. As Simon Wilson says, wider roads induce more driving, which creates more congestion, which means you need wider roads. Eventually, you just run out of space. In a comment piece on Tuesday, Stuff's political editor Luke Malpass said the IPCC report will be the basis of commitments our government will have to make on emissions, like it or not. And so far... New Zealand has still been much better at giving lip service to emission reductions than actually driving down emissions, including the current government. This report will again make the case for relative inertia and complacency harder to make. Given that, you'd think the media would view cycle and pedestrian infrastructure with a little bit of a more favourable lens. If the opposite is true, it's hard to see how we'll ever start building for the future we want, rather than the congested, polluted present we have. Hayden Donnell there on how the media can be a bit of a roadblock on efforts to cut transport emissions and traffic congestion in our cities and towns. Back in mid-May, news broke of a disturbing online hack that turned out to be possibly the most serious cybersecurity breach in New Zealand history that we know of at least. In some developing news, Waikato District Health Board is currently experiencing an outage of all information services. The outage is affecting all clinical services to varying degrees across hospitals in the Waikato. And we now know it took months for the Waikato DHB to get back to normal and it wasn't just an outage. Data, including people's private medical records, were harvested by criminal hackers seeking to cash in on it by demanding a ransom. And when they didn't get it from the DHB or from the government after six weeks, this happened. Data stolen from Waikato DHB's computer system has been published on the dark web. It follows last month's ransomware attack that disrupted five hospitals. 
That was TVNZ1 News back on the 29th of June, after which reporter Laura James told viewers this. One News hasn't seen it, but this expert has no doubt it's all from the DHB. Well, I chose a management document that was unlikely to contain personal information. I opened that and it came from Waikato DHB. That was the voice of a cybersecurity expert, Daniel Ayres, who told TVNZ that when he looked at the data, he found bank details of staff, DHB business information, as well as people's private medical information. Also, some of the material that we can see was also included in the information previously leaked to some media organisations, and I understand that was confirmed as being genuine. The hackers had sent a link to it to other media as well, including RNZ. Media organisations have been sent an email from a group claiming responsibility and it contains a link to what appears to be scores of private patient and staff data. The Registered Doctors Association representative Deborah Powell told Morning Report that doctors were worried on patients' behalf about the media seeing their private stuff. You know, from the point of view of the media having received the stuff but not using it, um, that will help immensely because the confidence of the staff to carry on, no pressure on them, uh, not being as great because that information won't be released, that will help. That will help a lot. And with all that in mind, Deborah Powell said she was reassured by RNZ's stance. And RNZ has referred the email to the police and digitally confined the information, which we won't be publishing. But it turned out that RNZ had not confined this information from its own news gathering. One month later, Morning Report co-host Corin Dan told listeners this. A child spent more than nine weeks in a Waikato hospital because Oranga Tamariki failed to find anywhere else for them to live. Documents posted on the dark web by the cyber attackers who targeted the DHB reveal staff were deeply concerned by aspects of the agency's work in one of its hospitals. In material reviewed by RNZ, staff at the Waikato District Health Board said they were extremely distressed by the agency's treatment of a traumatised child who experienced feelings of abandonment. So if RNZ had said four weeks earlier they wouldn't publish the stolen data, which the hackers were using for extortion, why did RNZ then air a story about what they found in it? RNZ is broadcasting this story as the documents raise questions of public interest importance Porter Kate Gregan said this child wasn't unwell and was meant to be there for just one week under a special arrangement with the DHB, but shockingly the child was still there weeks later. One experienced nurse described it as the most distressing uplift in her entire career in paediatrics. Now the words uplift and oranga tamariki have been in a fair few controversial stories in 2020 and 2021. Revelations about uplifts by newsroom.co.nz prompted no fewer than five inquiries into Oranga Tamariki and also apologies and changes at the top. But while RNZ could get no statement from Oranga Tamariki, it had this one on its own behalf for its listeners. RNZ's view is that reporting this story is in the public interest and all care has been taken to protect the identity and interests of the child involved. All documents have been securely handled and no confidential patient information has been retained by RNZ. And all this worried the Privacy Commissioner of New Zealand, John Edwards. Before Morning Report was off the air that day, he'd released a statement which said this. This reporting would appear to raise quite significant ethical questions, and I would be concerned to think of journalists trawling through illegally obtained deeply sensitive personal information to identify and generate stories. The fact that one media source would appear to have done so may prompt others to do so, effectively creating a market for this very personal material. 
The Privacy Commissioner went on to say he was considering whether to lay a complaint with the media watchdogs, the Broadcasting Standards Authority and the New Zealand Media Council. A few days later, though, this was RNZ News on the 4th of August. RNZ has been banned from using any more of the information stolen in the Waikato District Health Board cyber attack and ordered to permanently delete any copies of it from its systems. In a judgment released today, Justice Churchman stopped short of requiring RNZ to take the story down. However, RNZ cannot use any more of the hacked information and all copies have to be deleted. It's not the first time that hacked and stolen data has made headlines. Nikki Hager's books Hollow Men and Dirty Politics are cases in point, and the blogger exposed in Dirty Politics, Cameron Slater, also hired someone to illegally access a left-wing blog called The Standard, and this was only revealed after he sought a court order to keep his name and details of the case secret, but NewsHub took legal action and won the right to tell the tale. Overseas, hacked data is the source of more and more headlines too. The same day back in June that RNZ aired that Oranga Tamariki scoop, the WNYC podcast On The Media asked, how do you balance what's newsworthy against potential harms of revealing private stuff that's been hacked, sometimes for money? Nude celebrity photos or somebody's random medical records, they're too harmful to publish in a legit media outlet, and it's not particularly newsworthy. Exactly. If something was unbelievably newsworthy and it was a clear, you know, let's say Russian hacking operation, but it was legitimate, I think most outlets would still go for it. There is no single standard. Every media outlet sort of decides on its own what it feels comfortable doing. But can they feel comfortable when hackers are doing this for extortion? So the double extortion is when the hackers also threaten to leak the data if they don't get their money, which is what happened earlier this year to Jones Day, one of the biggest law firms in the country. Well, one who is clearly still not comfortable with media outlets deciding what they feel comfortable doing with hacked data is the Privacy Commissioner John Edwards, who still doesn't think RNZ did the right thing. I think it's really important that um, the ethical dimensions of this get thoroughly examined because uh, it's unlikely that this will be the last instance we see of personal information being stolen and, and it shouldn't be regarded as being there to identify news stories. In this instance, uh, Radio New Zealand was not aware of any public interest when it accessed the information. So that's a ends justifies the means argument. So I'd, I'd like the um, you know the relevant authorities to um, examine those uh, standards and codes and see whether they are fit for purpose in this modern age. If you come out one layer further, the example that this has set is very troubling to a lot of people. And I've had calls from people who say, you know. I was treated at this hospital. Um, is my information in the stolen data set? You know, that's a matter of anxiety for, I think, quite a lot of people in that district. You know, Radio New Zealand in this case has, I think, really pushed up against that boundary. I think crossed it. And Radio New Zealand is mostly a pretty responsible uh, and reputable uh, organisation. There are many others who may look at this example and say, wow, Great source. You know, there's 20 gigabytes of data. I wonder what we can find out about whom. Before we go any further, this has been challenged in court uh, in this specific instance with RNZ effectively being ordered, you know, not to use that information anymore. Doesn't that establish 
if not a precedent, then certainly a principle that, that media could follow. Do, do you consider that media ought to look at that and say, actually, we, we really can't or shouldn't use data that we get via a similar route in the future? It's very helpful, and I think um, orders should have been sought as soon as the DHB became aware that the information was available on the dark web. The orders that... What, the are you de- in a preemptive strike against news media using it? Yes. Specifically? Well, that, yes. That's, in fact, what has been um, issued, because that order is effective against any other news outlet now from accessing or using information from the stolen data set. Well, if we look at what happened here, just so it's clear for listeners, so the hackers who want to profit from this uh, sent media organisations a link to the information. The the penetration of of a DHB's IT system had those huge knock-on effects over a number of weeks. Are you saying it's not okay for the media to have a look? Because isn't it legitimate for them to want to know that these people weren't bluffing? There's, I mean, there's an enormous story there about um, the impact of the leak on the operations and the ransomware on, on the operations of the organisation. But once that's confirmed, uh, I don't believe that there is any public interest uh, in the media going through uh, and looking up details of people who have had access to the health system. But, I mean, this is a story about a child stuck in a hospital, and of great concern among DHB staff about this. It also concerned an organisation, Oranga Tamariki, which has been at the heart of a whole range of stories about its competence and its conduct recently, and those are, those are certainly stories of genuine public interest. So once a journalist has seen this information, you can't really ask them to ignore that, can you? Again, um, that public interest is predicated on this unethical access to unlawfully obtained information. It's stolen property. You would have preferred RNZ once they even they'd seen that, not to publicise it at all? I, I, they shouldn't have seen it. If, R- if, if uh, Colin, uh, a Radio New Zealand journalist, walks past uh, an office of Oranga Tamariki and, and finds that the door's open, should they walk in? Once they walk in, they see a computer terminal that's on. Should they sit down? Should they tap away at that? So RNZ, as you mentioned, I mean, it, it has a fairly good track record of not being cavalier about people's privacy. It's a public service broadcaster which, uh, you know, exists to serve the public, and they make judgments about the public interest uh, all the time. Uh, they're not interested in making money, as commercial media might be, and they're certainly not trying to damage anyone's reputation. Can't they be trusted, in your mind, to to serve the public interest in, in this instance? No, clearly not. I mean, the evidence is in, is in the action. How many other documents did they look through before they found the one that they thought there was a public interest in? You know, how much harm has that done to um, the individuals whose uh, privacy has been breached? What do you consider to be best practice? What should every media organisation do as soon as they receive the link or the approach or the material itself in some form or other from someone who they can be pretty sure has acquired it illegally? Well, the first thing, I think, is to notify the um, agency which is the legitimate custodian of the information so that they can take steps to protect that information. Uh, and that may mean seeking the sorts of orders that Waikato DHB obtained last week a bit more promptly. Uh, and that would um, take the burden of those difficult judgments away from the media because they'd be prohibited by the court. Uh, and, and you know this could be a race to the bottom. As I say, um, Radio New Zealand has decided to go and see what it can find and then um, uh, construct the public interest Uh, argument. I do think there is um, a need for media to reflect on how it uh, responds to um, these kinds of incidents in the future and I think that the uh, oversight agencies such as the uh, Broadcasting Standards Authority have a role to play there in setting some ethical limits. And so you're going to go ahead now pursue this with either Broadcasting Standards Authority or Media Council, possibly both? Yes, that's my intention.
John Edwards, the Privacy Commissioner, speaking to me earlier this week, and clearly he didn't think RNZ made the right call back in June to air that story, which was sourced from data hacked from the Waikato DHB and then handed to the media, and which a court has subsequently said the media must not publish or even retain. So how and why did RNZ decide that the public interest in airing that story about a child in Oranga Tamariki's care who ended up in hospital for weeks overrode concerns about privacy or where that data came from in the first place? RNZ's editor-in-chief is its chief executive, Paul Thompson. Well, you're right, it was a difficult decision and I haven't had to consider one of these, something quite like this before. The reporting was really careful and judicious and senior editors guided uh, the reporting all the way through. The head of news and I had to wrestle with it uh, with legal advice to decide whether the story was in the public interest to to publish and broadcast, which we did. Okay, but was it a unanimous decision? Were there people at RNZ that felt actually it was the wrong call and you had to make a call on that as editor-in-chief? Uh, yeah, we canvassed every opinion, tried to look at it from other angles and challenged ourselves, and we had legal advice to help guide that. Um, but in the end, um, you know, I was confident, um, as was Richard, our head of news, that we'd taken what steps we needed to take to ensure we protected the privacy of the individual and that the public interest, because this was a harrowing story about a child that was effectively institutionalised because of uh, the lack of action and the actions of Oranga Tamariki, that it was justified to publish and broadcast the story. But John Edwards said, given the nature of the material and where it came from, you know, the, the criminal nature of procuring it and sending it on to the media, RNZ and all media sh- just shouldn't have looked at it. He called it unethical access to unlawful material. So he says your public interest argument is a kind of means justifies the ends thing, that it's as opportunistic as kind of sneaking into an Oranga Tamariki office through an open door, climbing onto their computers and, and looking around. Well, it's, it's nothing like that at all, and um, it is good that the Privacy Commissioner is advocating his position, but the the role that media companies have and editors and journalists have is to, to weigh both the public and the private interest, and many aspects of journalism do stray into areas where they cause privacy concerns. That's an, an, an essential and um, unavoidable part of journalism. So looking at that material, you say flat out, is not unethical, whereas he says it is. Uh, yes, I do. Initially, we went and looked on the dark web to see whether the material on the dark web was actually the material that had been compromised at the DHB. And there's no way of telling that unless you go and have a look at it. And that was an important aspect of journalistic inquiry. We then saw as we looked at it, um, these particular files, and we looked at those files and then came across the story. What we didn't do is rove and roam across the database. We didn't look into private medical records. We were very, very focused, and we did it with the guidance of senior staff all along the way. But John Edwards says other media will see this and say, well, look, if it's okay for RNZ to dig around in what he calls unlawfully acquired material, it would be okay for them if this sort of situation arises again. So you've legitimised media to look at uh, material that could be passed on to them by people who are trying to profit from nicking it. Um, I would be highly surprised if um, something that RNZ does has that impact. Each company will make its own decision. Um, but also, I mean, the second point is I haven't seen any evidence of that. But that's not to well, say... He says he's had phone calls from people who are clients of that DHB who are alarmed and worried about yeah. the possibility of journalists and media organisations looking at their private information. And indeed, in 
the court judgment. We heard about earlier, it, the judge did say um, it would be a source of immense stress to all individuals whose confidential information is at risk of being misused. So those are genuine concerns, aren't they? Uh, they are concerns, but it is a leap, I think, to say that our judicious reporting of this one particular matter, which is, has high public interest, somehow sets a precedent for everyone else and somehow creates a real risk that anyone's going to go in and look through private records in the way that people have the concerns about. I'm not saying that they're not entitled to raise those issues, and we should be talking about this. It is challenging, but I think it is a bit of a leap to say that our reporting has that impact. But it is an essential part of the debate that's now going to happen. Journalistic practice does evolve over time, and this is one example where we do need to think about, have this debate get those different perspectives and indeed see what the BSA and the Media Council think about this matter. Well, with that in mind, though, that court judgment, uh, it does oblige RNZ not to publish any more from that information. So do you consider that to be, if not an, a legal precedent, then at least a, a principle that obliges you and other media not to use material like this in the future? The DHB always had the option of seeking injunctive relief even ahead of us looking into the story to prevent people using that material. RNZ was um, actually comfortable with um, the injunction that was sought because we have done the story. There was only one story we were interested in doing, and we don't have any other documents. We haven't retained those documents. We don't want to do any more reporting on this because of the circumstances in which we found out about this particular angle. So we didn't oppose that court injunction. What we did push back on was the DHB's request that we take down the stories from the web, mm. um, and we've been able to um, hold that position, which I think is really important. So the, the critical point about those court proceedings is that RNZ did not go in and argue our case in those court proceedings. We will do that, however, if formal complaints go through to the regulatory agencies. And we have an open mind in terms of how the debate now uh, develops. But I think it would be a very sad day where um, anyone started to develop prescriptive rules that constrain journalism and journalistic freedom. But some people listening to this will be thinking, RNZ, and, and perhaps you personally, don't actually care much that this information came to you via a really illegal source. People looking to steal information from a public organisation and then monetize it and use the media exposure or the threat of it. Uh, the distribution of, as part of the leverage for getting a ransom. Um, I'm highly mindful of that. It is a real consideration, but it's not a binary matter in my view that that means that no journalistic inquiry is justified in these circumstances. It is a case-by-case matter. That is a real issue, and I think that's something that the journalism profession is going to have to wrestle with. It's never going to be as clear-cut as perhaps some people would like, and it will come down to how individual media organisations handle particular issues. And I think the way we handled this issue, given all, those, given all those circumstances, was appropriate. Will you do things differently next time? Would you consult anyone else first before you and the news leaders at RNZ make a decision on it? No, I think our process was robust and thoughtful and appropriate. Uh, every situation will be different. Um, one thing I should mention is you know, RNZ operates under a comprehensive editorial policy. And our actions in this case did comply with the policy, but we are actually going to go back and look at our policy to see whether we need to update it to cover this particular issue, because as you say, I think it is going to become something that happens, that crops up more frequently. We just need to make sure our policy provides the right guidelines so we can make sure that we always weigh the public and private privacy interests appropriately.
That's Paul Thompson, Chief Executive at RNZ and also its Editor-in-Chief, talking to me there about the decision to air a story back in June that was sourced from stolen data from the Waikato District Health Board, in which, as we heard earlier, the Privacy Commissioner is pursuing, with media watchdogs, the Broadcasting Standards Authority and the New Zealand Media Council. So more on that story as it develops in future here on Media Watch. But that's all we have for you in Media Watch this weekend, though we will be back with more on the media at about 10.30 next Wednesday night with Midweek Media Watch talking to Karen Hay on The Lately Show and then back again with more Media Watch at the same time next weekend here on RNZ National.